Guys, welcome back to Murder Blows. This week, this is Maisie. My name is Maisie. I'm coming at you live from my bathroom. Don't ask. Um, we have Cody's case. Holy shnikes. When I say get your red string ready, I'm not kidding. So Cody's case, she's going to cover a triple homicide, which is one of the tentacles of the octopus which is a book that she talked about in one of her last cases, in all of her last cases. Buzzwords are like Danny Casolaro's included. Does that sound familiar? Because it should. Uh, the book, The Last Circle, the Desert Fay YouTube channel. Like, what? Get ready. It's awesome. We're here for it. I'm so excited to listen to it back again. Anyway, um, yeah, welcome to the episode. And with me is... Cody. Sasha. And Violet. Cue that intro! Shit, fam. Yeah, John just got back from a trip, like literally just got home from the airport, and so he's like, kind of want to relax. And I was like, well, <laughs> you're gonna ruin my podcast, so let you relax <laughs> somewhere else. Since the bathroom is the only other little literal room we have, mm. not this is not forever. Nope. This is today, and I plan to do the least amount of talking. I, mean, I say that. Okay, does this sound any different? Yeah. No. Oh. <laughs> Shots fired. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it like that. Keep talking, Maisie. I think it's different. Okay, I'm right here and I'm talking and I'm the appropriate distance from the mic, so hopefully it's not too loud. No. No, no difference? No, it sounds good. I think it sounds great. You just stopped echoing. Sweet. The box fucking works, guys. I'm keeping Tell this me. box forever. Am I echoing? No. Hell yeah, the box fucking works. This is my box. Am I too oh. loud? No, I was gonna say, are you also in a bathroom? No. <laughs> Though I Finally, get on this... the bathroom train. I mean, isn't a bathroom just really where you decided it is? Like my fucking cats did this morning? Uh-oh. Ooh. They just shit over the side of the litter box. It's fine. It's just really funny. But I'm still mad at them. Cat hey, props. I haven't listened to the. Are we recording? Is this a thing? I'm sorry I'm late. Whoa. Wait, Let me recording. just start. Let me just start apologizing. But it brings me to an interesting conversation topic. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I was like. Yes. Okay. I'm curious. So I work for a company. Uh, that closed all of their locations today for racial bias training. And how does that make you feel? Um, I learned that I work with... Mm. 35 <laughs> racists. I'm so scared for you to say the answer. It's not... It's not that... Okay. As a white Jewish woman, uh... There were moments when, like, we were listening to things. Also, the cringiest of things. Mm. Like, 
I, I don't know what I can talk about and what I can't, uh, because I, it was really, okay, let me, okay. This super long meeting that you had today, four yes hours. or no, four hours, four hours, do you feel like as a whole it was worth it? I did not learn anything, but I feel like, <sighs> okay. Somebody else it... may have? I hope, because it was like really powerful, really impactful fucking common the rapper yeah yeah did some of our like training videos that's insane they got the ceo of the company they got the like owner it was i thought it was they got like a documentary filmmaker involved it was really like powerful stuff like i cried oh no because it's all about like it was just it was really moving but then like I understand that it's all about acceptance and I as as a even though I'm Jewish as a white female white cisgendered female some of the girls I'm going to say just the girls too were like you know sometimes I feel profiled because I have a southern accent and people think I'm dumb oh my god they can feel that way if they want to yep but they're wrong (laughs) but i was like we literally just watched this crazy sad documentary about how like like african americans are are concerned about like leaving their house and riding bus stations or walking too close to white people and you're sitting here and you're like people think i'm dumb because i have a southern accent and i was just like oh fuck They were like, Violet, when's the time you've been scared because of your race? And I was like, well, when Nazis were roaming the street, I was pretty fucking terrified. <laughs> but it's not like I had a, like, fucking, you know, like, there, there's no signifier for me. Yeah. And it was just... <sighs> I think what the company did was amazing and fantastic. And I think to the right audience, it absolutely needs to be said. But <laughs> I think... That some of the people were not the people that it was just so like, it was cringe. Like it was wasted on that store. Yeah. Like okay, so I my roommate, uh, one of my roommates and I worked together, and we just kept making direct eye contact and like trying not to laugh. Yeah. And like I said, I I I'm trying not to. The whole the whole meeting's overtone was about acceptance and like really beautiful. Like I said, beautiful meeting, but. I felt like the point was missed by a couple of individuals. Mm. <laughs> I can see that. But, but, uh, yeah, that's what I did. So I, I opened and then closed the store and then did ra- racial bias training for oh four hours. Gosh. And then waited two hours for my hot wings. Oh. <laughs> but I'm here and... I'm trained to handle racial biasing and just ready, ready to pot. I'm so sorry again. <laughs> Members of the podcast listening right now, just just know that I did not mean to be late. But when the waiter was like, hey, what do you want at 820? I was like, I'm going to be fucking later than I thought. Oh, oh, it's no worries. You guys switched dates for me, so we're all in this together. I'm going to edit the podcast in a car tomorrow. Well, strangers. <laughs> not strangers. Not strangers. Is she going to want to play 20 questions? You're like, not today. 
<laughs> I got a question for you. How biased are you? Yeah. racist. Break it down. Let me break it down for you. Where my pen is. Uh oh. Damn. So how was everyone's weeks? <laughs> Mild. Mild. Mild compared to last week when we're all like, it's a hard week. Yeah. John's been out of town, so I've been realizing that I don't eat if it's up to me. If I'm to my left to my own devices, <laughs> I don't like to cook. And I will just like one day, all three meals were like all a type of carb with the cheese on it. And I was like, this is unacceptable. That's fair. Mm, seems reasonable. I know, but like, God, I did not feel good at the end of the day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he's back now and I can be normal and not gross. <laughs> normal and not gross. I appreciate That's that. That sounds bad, but like, I don't know. That's Left to my own device, I'm very gross. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I have to tell you all my funny story about yes. that. Oh, yeah. Okay. So we're going through our house and trying to get our stuff we don't use. So I decided to go through my paint cabinet in my garage, and I decided to donate all of my paint colors that I don't use to the creative theater that's around here because they paint scenes and get kids involved in acting and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I had all of these mostly empty like paint cans and some of them were really, really old paint that I didn't know what to do with. And I just set them on the floor of the garage and was like, here, Seth, you do something with these. Well, Seth was like, in order for the dump to take those, you have to put cat litter in them. And I was like, oh, okay. And I never did it because it never dawned on me, like, hey, go to the garage right now and put cat litter in those cans of paint. So I go out the other night, and my husband's sitting on the garage floor with all these cans of paint, and he's putting litter in them, except for he's using the dirty litter from the litter Ew. boxes. Oh, no. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, well, you didn't do this, so I have to do it now. And I'm like, but I was going to use the clean litter. And he's like, well, we might as well just use this. And I look down, and he has, like, a garden <laughs> shovel. And he's just shoveling shit. Into oh. Hands. oh, no. And putting oh. back on them. And I was oh. like... Do you realize at the dump somebody is going to be like, oh, look, some paint cans. Those look like pretty colors. And then open Shit. them up and be like, what the fuck were these people doing? Were they hoarding their cat's shit? <laughs> and like some of them were glass jars because I had used glass jars so I could like have a smaller container of paint to lug around and so there's just glass jars full of cat shit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a story that tops that. No. That's yeah. hilarious. And I was like, this is too good. And so yeah, and then he just set them outside. He didn't even take them off off to the set them outside. <laughs> this is some grade A white trash here. And then so tonight I'm like, hey, the insurance adjuster's coming Wednesday, so we should probably um get rid of those paint cans of cat shit. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> why? Why he didn't just use the clean letter, I will never know. I mean, waste not, what not. Cat litter is expensive. Yeah, for real, it is. And you always, you never have it when you need it. So, I mean, I understand that it's just him sitting in the middle of the garage floor with a garden spade, shoving cat shit into buckets. Never. I never will forget that one. That was great. <laughs> but that's like just a wonderful thing. Yeah. Oh, man. I talked to my health coach, you know, the one that told me to eat less and exercise more. Yeah. And I was like, hey, I stopped doing both of those things. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, how's that going? I'm like, not good. <laughs> not good, Scott. <laughs> Well, Scott, I think it was Andy, actually. Andy pawned me off to Ashley, which normally when you hear Ashley, and I'm not judging anyone by their names, but normally girls named Ashley are fantastic, and they're very bubbly. Uh, this Ashley was not, and spoke like a robot. So when she called, I 100% thought she was a robot. Um, so that was awkward. I hate that. <laughs> yep. Oh, yeah. I I don't like calling customer service places where I talk to robots. I can't imagine a robot calling me. Nope. Forget that uh, noise. Yeah, I told her I lost two pounds. What I didn't tell her is I lied about my starting weight. And here we are. <laughs> so I've literally lost zero pounds. I just haven't gained any. So I'll pat myself <laughs> on the back. <laughs> so high five. five. Never mind. Caring. Um, <laughs> so that's good. And then she was like, well, what goals do you want to do this next three weeks? And I was like, I think I should stick to my old ones because I failed. <laughs> she made me pick new goals. And then she said, don't worry about failing. There's always a chance to start over. And now is the best time. I was like, bitch, I'm about to drive to a water park where they serve frozen drinks in refillable glasses. Now <laughs> is not the time to start over. It sounds like everything she said she reads off of an inspirational poster hanging up behind her. Yes, but like she mixes up the words or something because it just sounds very depressing. <laughs> with a kitten with one paw being like, hang in there. <laughs> but there's like an alligator underneath it. Oh no. They're <laughs> like, don't. Don't you even. <laughs> Don't mess this up for us. I have a funny story. Oh, yes. All right, go. <laughs> all right, go. Yeah. Uh, I was walking Mari, because that's all I ever do, and we are passing a house or an apartment that the window was kind of eye level to me, and it was to my right. And they had one of those crank windows that was open. So the window's open. There is a screen but the blinds are closed and it caught my eye because out of my like peripheral, there was this huge, huge bug on the inside of the screen. Like, so if it flew, it would go, it would hit the blinds and be like stuck inside the apartment. Oof. And so I'm just watching this thing. Cause it's starting to like flutter and it's like freaking out. Cause it see that it's stuck. It's the size of like a cockroach. It's massive. And I was like, I hate this. And all of a sudden you hear, Sack! and the person like slapped through the blinds and hit it against the screen and it died. And I was like, I just yelled from the street and I was like, got it. And she goes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that is the best. 
That's not like, a Craigslist misconnection. I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> she she couldn't see me. And I couldn't see her. I just knew it was a femaleish voice. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, to tie both of these stories together, did you know you are more accurate? Well, okay, hold on. There was a study done of human beings, and uh, human beings are more accurate identifying the race of someone on the phone than they are the gender. Whoa. Fun fact. I mean, I guess with, like, accents and stuff, that makes sense. I mean, some accents really make sense. Like, I don't know how to say this nicely, but I know when you're from India. Well, yeah. But... But also, like, I know when you're from New York, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And those are well, my favorites. Yeah. <laughs> One of my managers came down from the Northeast, and she has the most normal accent until she says water. And then I'm like, what happened? What? <laughs> but it's like normal, normal, normal water. I'm like, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm going to step back. Okay. You live your life, lady. I love it. Did she say, like, water? I don't know. I can't imitate it. Let's be real. That was good, Cody. Yeah, it was good. Because I'm from Pennsylvania. Awesome. <laughs> Pennsylvania. Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Oh, wait. When are you going to Pennsylvania? It's in July. Never mind. Yeah. I'm still preparing myself. I it's like the same uh, weekend I come to Tennessee. Yeah. Oh, the murder blows uh, sleepover. Why don't you guys just stay at my house and house it for me so it's not lonely, so my animals aren't lonely? I was going to say, with all your cats, I'm into it. Do it. I was going to say, like, how far are we talking from town? Cause... It's like, like 15, 20, 20 minutes. 20 minutes from Pigeon Forge. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. But I have a swimming pool. Ooh. You have a swamp. I have a swamp. Are you going to uh, adjust your chlorine levels before the insurance adjuster comes? <laughs> well, what happened was, busted. <laughs> it was it was green because it took. I had to fill it from my well because the fire departments no longer fill swimming pools. So I had to like wait until it rained, and I had to do it at night because that's mamaw gets really mad when we use the water pressure. And so I had to fill it like a few inches a day. So it wasn't green, but it turned green again because I couldn't run the filter while I was filling it. So I finally got it full and I was like, it's green again, but I'm going to go get chlorine and I'm going to dump in it. So I just dumped in chlorine thinking, oh, it'll turn gray and then it'll filter all of the clumps of dead algae out. No, it turned brown because my water has <gasps> sulfur in it. And so it looked like Coca-Cola. So I'm wow. like devastated because I'm like this is the only thing my son looks forward to what am I gonna do it's supposed to rain for like a week anyway and so Seth is a good diver and he gets on YouTube and he's like <laughs> all right we have to make a giant filter so he takes this big huge bucket and fills it with like pillow batting mm-hmm. and hooks the filter up to it and he did it Saturday morning and by Sunday morning he did it Saturday afternoon and then he had to turn it off on Sunday because he had to mow the grass. And then by Monday morning, you could see the bottom of the swimming pool. And so all I have to do is wait till it gets warm and then vacuum it out and add some chlorine tablets and we're good to go. What are you vacuuming? The bottom of the pool. You have to like, there's, they make swimming pool vacuums. And so like you um, make a suction and you vacuum the bottom of your swimming pool and it just pulls out like, any leaves or dirt that's on the bottom of it it's really easy 
like, well, shit, fam, I learned something new. I was going to say, science is crazy. I enjoy taking care of swimming pools because it's, like, summery and fun. But I was really depressed when it turned brown. <laughs> like, no. But yeah, by July, it'll be crystal clear and probably, like, bath water. So, it'll be good. Nice. Yeah. I just don't want my animals to be lonely. Like, I just don't like leaving home for a week because I'm like, oh, my dog is, she gets clinically depressed and just lays in the dirt. And it's sad. Oh, oh I have something about depressed dogs and dogs with anxiety. Do it. Okay. Yes. Okay. We are just like spitballing today. This is great. Um, so there is a wonderful podcast called Ologies with Allie Ward. If you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend it. Um, the latest episode she has, and I don't know the name of what he does, but he's a behavioral analyst for dogs and animals. And so he was talking about, like, what to do with dogs with anxiety. And, like, one of the things was she asked, is it people just now noticing that dogs have anxiety? Have they always had anxiety? Or, you know, is it just because they're more in our household than they were? years and years and years ago and he said we're paying more attention to our dogs and their feelings and like their emotions and stuff because they've become a part of our family and I was like absolutely they have it's totally right um so a couple of things he suggested which we do this for Mari is like a thunder shirt which is just like a tight jacket thing and then another thing he recommended was he called it a music box and if you don't listen to ologies whenever Allie is asking these questions to someone and they answer and she's not really sure what they're talking about. She'll like, she'll interrupt. She won't interrupt, but she'll like cut and paste her own voice over what he was saying. And it was like, this is what I found when I Googled it. And when he said music box, she looked it up and there's a YouTube channel and I can find it. But essentially what it does, it, it plays the right, like, the right tones for your dog to calm them down oh. and they they have videos that are like 10 hours long like if you leave your dog alone uh, let me get the name of the channel relax my dog is the name of the youtube channel yes and, i'm putting that into the show notes watch I know, aka I, the description box yeah i subscribed because i listened to a few of them and they have like a live feed of like puppies running around and music playing and it's they have different music types for different scenarios but the myth that dogs can hear like is super more sensitive than ours is kind of false they just hear everything in higher octaves so the music is like lower tones and it's very like stuff you would hear in a spa and it's just crazy and I didn't even think about it because when Mari was a puppy and we would leave her alone we would play classical music and she would be calm and once we moved into an apartment that was a studio, we just kept the TV on and she was fine. But I'm going to try it one day because they have, like I said, a video that's 10 hours long. I'm going to try it when I have to leave for work and see if she's like more chill when I come back and I'll let you know. But yeah, that's a thing. I'm gonna that's a thing I learned today. I pack tonight because anytime he sees the suitcase, he's like, oh, hell no. 100%. Yeah. That's a thing. So the, the YouTube channel is called Calm Your Dog? I think it's Relax My Dog. Relax My Dog. There we go. And then it's Ologies. Is that O-L-O-G-I-E-S? Yep. Sweet. 
You would like it. You learn a lot. I was just telling someone about, like, my obsession with learning. Like, I get on to myself all the time because when I was a kid, I would read, like, a book and a half or two books a day. And uh, I just swallowed really hard, and I hope my mic did not pick that up. But um, I still, I realize, like, I still read the, the same amount. Whoops. Just punch that. Man, get your life together. Okay. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm in my bathroom. Who the fuck is talking? Hell yeah. Um, but no, I read the same amount. I just, like, read garbage. So, like, I learn so much stuff on Reddit. Like, I save, see, this is why I didn't want it on my phone. But I save Reddit for last in the morning. So that way I can be, like, on the weekends when I'm just laying there. And I'm like, look at all the stuff I can learn. <laughs> on reddit i follow our aquariums because i don't know i know a lot about fish now nice we'll check it out she probably does a thing on fishes she covers all kinds of stuff she did one on like how the stars are and not so much like your horoscopes but the actual stars themselves the last one of the last ones was about trees it's crazy you learn so much check it out i'm into it yay allergies I'm going to make a list of things we love. I'm going to put swimming pools on it. <laughs> Personal swamps. <laughs> That's why, no. Drain the swamp, but we like swimming pools. Cat litter paint buckets. <laughs> I won't put that one there. Insurance adjusters. I don't love them. I have like 10 pages of story to read to you guys. Oh my oh, god, crap. we got to get started. <laughs> I know, I have the biggest corrections corner though okay, fast and yeah fast super fast so our last episode i covered herbert mullen which was the serial killer that believed that human blood could stop the next big earthquake so i thought i had royally messed up and it turns out i just messed up a little bit but i still want to make it right so this is my corrections from that he had 13 victims um i said the names of eight of them so if you haven't heard of that story, go back and listen to the ep episode. If you don't care, just skip forward the next 15 seconds. Um, the victims I did not mention were the four boys in the tent. So their names were Robert Spector, David Oliker, Brian Card, and Mark uh, Dry Belbus. And they ranged in ages from 15 to 18. So I did not mean to leave them out. Obviously, I just was lazy and I procrastinated and then I rushed and I feel very bad about it. But those were the four boys that Herbert Mullen had killed in the um, in the woods, in the Henry Cowell Redwood State Park. He walked up to their tent and he pretended to be a state park person. And they were like not taking him seriously. And then he just straight up shot all of them right then and there. And then he stole one of their guns and that's who... That's the gun he used to shoot Fred Perez, which was his last victim. And then he got caught that day. So um, my apologies to these victims, the four boys and their families. I did not mean to not say your names because your names are so, so important. So that's my corrections. And I hope that's the worst corrections we ever have to do. <laughs> I thought you talked about them, but I... I did, but I remember. didn't say their names. Okay. I was just like, he shot four boys in the woods, and that's not cool. So, I'm sorry. They were good. Right. I feel better now. Is Violet around? Is Violet around? Are you eating Violet? 
No, I'm here. I'm here. Okay, cool. Cool. Do you guys want me to start, or do we have anything else that we need to discuss? No, we're good. I think we're good. This is going to take me, like, I'm just reading you guys a really long story. Okay. So if you get bored, let me know. I'm going to get comfy. I'm going to sit in my chair. All right, I'm ready. Yeah. Okay, so this um, goes back to the episode that we did called A Whole Nurse. And it's one of the tentacles of the octopus. And it's about a lady named Rachel Begley. And it is the daughter of Ralph Boger, who was murdered. And I'm just going to start reading. And if you guys have any questions or get confused, just stop me. Because all of my conspiracies are really confusing. And I'm really sorry. But someday I'll do, like, a simple one. I promise. Um, So... On the morning of July 1st, 1981, three bodies were discovered behind a shabby concrete ranch house on Bob Hope Drive, a main drag in a sand-swept stretch of California's scorching Coachella Valley. The corpses were sprawled in a semicircle on chairs and beds that had been dragged into the backyard. Each of the victims, the house's owner, Fred Alvarez, his girlfriend Patricia Castro, and a guest named Ralph Boger, who is Rachel's father, had been all killed by a single 38 caliber gunshot to the head. Police surmised that Alvarez and his friends had been planning to sleep outdoors to escape the heat of the house, which had no air conditioning, and were surprised in the dark by one or more assailants. There were few clues and no witnesses left at the scene. The crime had all the hallmarks of a professional hit. Boger's daughter, Rachel, Rachel Begley, who was 13 at the time, said she learned of her father's death from a television news bulletin. Her parents were divorced, and though she spent occasional days with her dad riding his motorcycle sidecar, she didn't know enough about his life to make sense of what had happened. The police would eventually conclude that Boger and Alvarez were killed in connection with shady doings at the nearby Cabazon Indian Reservation. But Begley's mother shielded her from all the murky details of the investigation. After the murders, Begley went through a rebellious phase and fell in with a bad crowd. By the time she was 15, she was pregnant and had dropped out of high school. Eventually, she got her GED and moved to Iowa. She said she would periodically wonder about the case and check in with the police, who never seemed to have any new information. Beyond that, she didn't have time or tools to delve too deeply. Then one night in 2007, she typed her father's name into Google. She didn't find much, but as she clicked through the few results that came up, she found a book entitled The Octopus. Based on the work of a fringe freelance journalist, the book argued that the 1981 triple slaying was wrapped up in an enormous plot involving arms dealings, private security firms, and the upper echelons of the Reagan administration. Skeptical but intrigued, Begley dug deeper and discovered that over the years, the murder case had taken on a curious life of its own, preserved on obscure websites, and nurtured by a grassroots community of obsessives. To these conspiracy theorists, Boger's killing was the work of a secret syndicate that they called the Octopus. I have a question. Yes. Okay, just yell at me if this is a spoiler. Okay. This is linked. Okay, this was 100% linked to your last episode, right? Yes, 100%. It's one of the tentacles. Is Danny Casalero the freelance writer of the Octopus? Um, let's see. Basically, that book was about him. Oh, that so, book has a lot in it, then. It's it not just about him, right? Exactly. It it's wouldn't make sense because the tentacles. Okay. Yeah, same. I was like, what? 
Yeah. Okay. Cool. Also, awesome. dumb question. Yes. You said that they were all shot through the head with a single bullet. Does that mean a single bullet each? I would say a single bullet each. Okay. Just making sure but this it was wasn't very like some really great hitman. I was like, that would be crazy if it was just a single. So they were I don't also... understand how guns work? Well, me either. But yeah. they were also arranged in a semicircle, which is really creepy. So, who knows? And they're all outside, right? They're all outside. Ugh. All outside. Okay. <clears throat> Let me see where I was. Okay. Begley Simple Google search launched a four-year and counting odyssey during which she has devoted herself to tracking down forgotten documents corresponding with federal prisoners, putting questions to Oliver North, and even confronting the man who may have shot her dad. Her work, she says, had placed her own life in danger and made her a target of the same forces that killed her father. And yet she cannot stop. She keeps following the siren song of the conspiracy theory, the same going path that lures others to the JFK assassin assassination in Area 51. What was once a family tragedy had blossomed into something else entirely, a vast puzzle whose solution promises to illuminate not only her father's death, but dark forces behind the world's apparent chaos. Most of the stuff I didn't believe, Begley says. I thought all these people were making money off of my dad's murder, writing these books. She was angry enough, in fact, that she was determined to prove the speculators wrong. At the time, Begley was working in customer service for an internet ser service provider, which was moving its back office operations into another state, and she was spending her days sitting idly at her computer, waiting to get laid off. Begley had once worked for a collections agency, and she knew how to track people down. I went and into it with a mindset, I guess, almost like a police officer would, she said. No one had ever been charged in the killings. On a sweltering afternoon in June, Begley was sitting in front of her Dell computer beneath a photocopy of a prayer protection from evil spirits who prowl around the world, trying to sum up the dimensions of the octopus conspiracy. You've got drug people mixing with the mafia, mixing with the hell's angels, mixing with the governments, various governments, actually, she said, as she clicks around the computer. This is where I piece it all together. Begley lives and works in a rickety house at the end of a gravel road next to a small pond and a rotting barn in a rural town outside Louisville, Kentucky, that she doesn't want named for security reasons. Out front, her guard dog, an aging flat-coated retriever named Lucky, lazes beneath her porch. Begley is 43 and heavy set with piercing blue eyes. On this day, her air conditioner is broken and her round face glistens with sweat. She has four children, and for a moment, she is collecting unemployment and selling a line of weight loss shakes to make money on the side. Before she had heard about the octopus, she never gave much thought to politics or read the newspaper. And she certainly didn't size up her dad, a bearded mechanic who liked to drink, smoke pot, and ride motorcycles, as the type to be tied up in plots. I thought it was a normal thing, Begley says of the killings. Well, murder is never normal, but I thought somebody went to try to rob them or something. In fact, within days of the crime, investigators had fixed their suspicion on John Philip Nichols, who was serving as a financial manager for the Cabazon Band of Mission Indians, a group of fewer than 30 descendants of a desert people that had long inhabited the Coachella Valley. Cabazons to open a casino, a casino, a radical idea at the time that caused clashes with the police and attracted some alleged mob associates to the reservation. Boger's friend, Fred Alvarez, a descendant tribe member, opposed the plan. Before his death, Alvarez had approached a local reporter to talk about blowing the whistle. There, aren't, there are a lot of people out there who want to kill me, Fred warned. 
No one knew what Alvarez was preparing to disclose, but initial inspection involved embezzlement. When Begley stumbled upon the octopus, though, she found a more nefarious explanation. Nichols proposed, proposed to use the tribe's sovereign status to build an arms factory on the reservation and ship weapons to Central American rebel groups like the Contras. Drawing heavily on a San Francisco Chronicle investigation, the book reported that he had struck a partnership arrangement with Wackenhunt, a private security firm with alleged ties to the CIA and Republican Party. Nichols was long gone. He had died of a heart attack in 2001, but Begley talked to Alvarez's sister, who recounted her family's thwarted efforts to get police to pursue the case. She then found William Hamilton, the developer of the Promise software, who had collaborated with Casalero on his investigation. Hamilton called her back on her cell phone as she was leaving for work one day, and he talked and talked until his battery was dead. It was like, boom, she said. He dumped all of this stuff in my lap. Begley may have started out trying to resist the octopus, but she gradually gave into the theory's implication. Her father had been caught up in a vast conspiracy, and it had killed him. So Begley dove deeper into the submerged ecosystem of interconnected message boards where inmates continued to discuss and dissect the octopus. I was one of those thinking that conspiracy people were weird, she posted on one of the boards. Then I had my eyes opened really fast. As she set out on her search, one of the things Begley did was fashion a new identity. She came up with a screenmate named Desert Fay and introduced her character in a YouTube series of videos. And I have not watched any of these YouTube videos. I kind of went to, but I'm kind of also afraid to. Like, I'll get sucked into a big rabbit hole and won't be able to quit. What is it called? Desert it's Fay? called Desert Fay. F-A-Y-E? Um, D-E-S-E-R-T-F-A-E. Oh, okay. Holy shit. It sounds really good. <laughs> I thought it was just my, my exclamation of everything so far. Okay, please continue. Um, yeah, and see, my child uses my internet to watch videos on Breath of the Wild, <laughs> how to beat it in master mode. So, like, that uses a ton of data, and I'm like, hey, I need that to watch conspiracy theories. But it's been raining, and I feel bad, so I'm just like, hey, <laughs> figure out how to how to beat it on master mode. The first one, set to pounding music, consisted of montages of images, an Indian chief, a close-up of her eyes, and a cryptic message. I am lost. I need your help and guidance to bring closure. I will be silent no longer. Soon the clues and proof will be found out. As Begley plunged into the world of conspiracy theorists, she found more than facts and assertions. She found a community with its own rules, ethics, and currency, and it was difficult one to penetrate. The cluster of people devoted to studying the octopus tended not to throw their arms open to newcomers. Over the years, they had built a kind of Gnostic society, a belief system that was both all-encompassing, a grand unified theory of everything sinister and exclusionary, open to the select few who could accept the devastating truth. They were suspicious of outsiders and divided into factions that warred over arcane points, often accusing one another of being double agents. With persistence and a covert zeal, Begley managed to win the trust of some of the leading the theorists. She formed a particularly tight bond with Sherry Seymour, a matronly San Diego woman who had been working for nearly 20 years on a book called The Last Circle, which is what I'm reading now. The two sealed their friendship with a transaction of weather documents. In one of those documents, Rachel found a federal neurotics prisoner named Michael Riccano Shuto, I always mess up his name, 
Casalero's principal source who had worked for the Cabazon Arms Company in the 1980s. The convict, who claimed he'd been framed, continued to play a leading role in the factional wars, penning letters in loopy cursive to numerous correspondents. Shortly after Begley began communicating with Rakana Shudo, she posted a new video entitled, Oh My God, Michael Called. Looking rattled, she reported that Rakana Shudo had warned that the octopus was watching. Then she cut into shaking handheld footage of a black helicopter that had peered over her house. Begley wasn't scared off the trail. She interviewed retired cops and unearthed new witnesses. She amassed thousands of documents, new clippings, police reports, Casalero's notes, leaked memos, reams of legal filings, and depositions. Informants found her website or friended her on Facebook and promised they could tell her about the octopus from the inside. If you're involved with some kind of high-level weird thing, she explains, and you've held it in for 20 or 30 years and you can't talk about it, eventually you're going to be like, I want to tell somebody before I die. Begley continued to post YouTube videos documenting her investigations, and before long, they started winning a small but avid viewership. And not just fellow conspiracy theorists. It seemed the police were paying attention as well. Back when she first had begun investigating, Begley called the police department in Riverside County, where Coachella is located, telling them the case was bigger than Watergate. She got a, dis a dismissive response, but after she started posting her videos, she received a phone call telling her that the cold case squad was reopening the inquiry into her father's murder. Soon, Begley focused her attention on one player in the ki killing, Jimmy Hughes. Jimmy Hughes was a former Cab Azan reservation employee who worked for John Philip Nichols. In 1984, in the midst of a business dispute, Hughes implicated Nichols to the police, claiming he had ferried a cash payment from Nichols to some unidentified contract killers for Alvarez hit, which he said his bosses had called a U.S. government covert action. So basically, you've got this Philip Nichols guy who the police looked into in the first place, blaming this other guy named Jimmy Hughes. The police had looked into Hughes' claims, but gradually shifted their suspicion to the informant himself. At that point, Hughes fled town, and the grand jury investigation into the murders fizzled. So as soon as the police started looking at this Jimmy Hughes guy, he fled town. Begley looked into Hughes and discovered that he had become an evangelical minister, and I don't know how we always end up with some kind of evangelical crap, but here we go again, guys. Um, based in Honduras, in December 2007, she began trying to contact him, but he ignored her. She had an idea why. On the website of a religious group, she discovered an autobiographic essay Hughes had posted that sounded eerily familiar. In it, he called himself a hitman with a new mission and told the story of an elite military training and a career as a contract killer, a life that was transformed when he was born again. She also found a list of upcoming speaking engagements, which indicated that Hughes was scheduled to address an evangelical banquet in Fresno, California. Begley booked a flight. On a raining evening in February 2008, Begley sat in the gilded ballroom of a historic Fresno Bank building as Hughes took the floor to preach. Inside her handbag, she carried a hidden camera that peeked out through a discreet hole she'd cut beneath the zipper. Next sat to it a loaded pistol, just in case. Hughes, a stocky 51-year-old with a graying buzz cut and raspy voice, bounded around, bellowing tales of his past brutality. Begley, nervous and the bleary-eyed from the sleepless cross-country flight exchanged text, me text messages with an accomplice who had come along as backup, Michael Alvarez, Fred's son. When Hughes finished his performance, 
Begley and Alvarez came forward with a rush of adrenaline, introducing themselves to the sweat-soaked evangelicalists as the children of the murder victims. And Hughes said, can't say nothing about that, he stammered. It's a long time ago. It's in the past. Not for us, Begley said insistently. We're trying to get a, a resolution. I don't care who got killed, Hughes shouted, attracting the bewildered attention of others at the banquet. I was uh, trained in the military. I killed people all over the world, right or wrong, because the government ordered me to. Hughes stalked off fuming, and Becky, or Begley began to cry. That seemed to bother the minister because he came back, speaking in a tone that was softer but full of veiled menace. Apparently, he had seen her web videos. Are you aware that goes all over the world? Are you crazy, lady, Hughes said. Think about your children. They need a mother. He told Begley and Alvarez that the murder was a mafia hit, and though he didn't explicitly admit to carrying it out, he talked like he knew much more. Your parents were involved in some very dangerous things, Hughes said. It's a lot bigger than just the murder of this guy or the murder of that guy. You're talking political people. You've got babies to take care of, Mama. Go home tonight and be at peace. Suddenly, the murky crime had come into focus, and the conspiracy theorists confronted an accustomed feeling. Vindication. Hughes' outburst seemed to confer Begley's deepest fears and also her most fear-fetched fantasies. After so many decades of false starts and mysterious ends, Begley had finally hit upon something undeniably tangible, an actual lead in the case. Within two days, Begley posted excerpts of the confrontation to YouTube, ending her video with a postscript in stark black and white. This crazy lady wants these murders solved. Shortly before Begley confronted Hughes, she began cooperating with John Powers, a Riverside County homicide detective who was investigating the reopened 1981 murder case. When Powers saw the video of her run-in with Hughes, he was impressed. The statement she got from him, Powers said, no police officer would have ever been able to get that. He and Begley went on to form an unusually tight partnership. She shared everything she learned with the man she called my detective and helped to persuade a pair of reluctant witnesses to offer damning stories and testimonies against Hughes. Still, the case had to overcome some curious obstacles. Powers was surprised to find that the records of the 1980s grand jury investigation had somehow disappeared, and it turned out that the district attorney of Riverside County, a long-serving prosecutor, was actually related to Hughes. Because of the conflict of interest, the case was transferred to the California Attorney General's office. After much prosecutorial wrangling, a warrant was finally issued. In September 2009, Hughes was arrested at Miami International Airport. Begley posted a celebratory video, and it flashed up an image of Hughes' mugshot across which she had scrawled, gotcha. As fond as he was of Begley, Powers' arrest complaint completely ignored the octopus conspiracy. The detective doubted that a jury would believe or even be able to follow the abstruse connection that followed and linked Hughes to the CIA, the Contras, and all the rest. Instead, he wanted to focus on the old dispute over building a casino on the Cabazon Reservation. Nichols thought he was going to be making a million, and Fred Alvarez was a threat to that, Powers says. That was enough motive for murder. On the afternoon of January 1st, the 29th anniversary of the murders, a grim-faced Begley walked into a courtroom in Indio, California for an important hearing. The chamber was packed with an crowd of reporters, members of Hughes' family, and a few supporters from the octopus community, including Sherry Seymour, which is the author of The Last Circle. Hughes was ushered in wearing chains and an orange jumpsuit. Then Michael Murphy, a dapper, dapper prosecutor from the Attorney General's office, rose and delivered a shocking blow. 
We have lost confidence in our ability to proceed with the prosecution, he said. Begley closed her eyes tightly as the prosecutor gave a vague reason for his sudden about face, something about new information and a reassessment of the evidence. Begley was allowed to dress the court. How many people must die or suffer at the hands of Jimmy Hughes, she asked, before he is brought to justice. But the judge dismissed the charges anyway, and it was enough to make you wonder if, if you were of a certain mindset, whether the fix was in. Afterwards, Powers stood next to Begley outside the courtroom as she addressed the television camera sobbing. The detective was disgusted by the outcome. The Attorney's General Office gave no further public explanation for its decision, but Powers sensed that the prosecutors were eager to dump the case. Murphy, he said, started to question the credibility of a witness Begley had uncovered. On the night of his release, Hughes emerged from jail into a furnace blast of desert darkness. Only God can justify and vindicate those who are really innocent, he, tri he triumphantly told the reporters outside of the Indio jailhouse. Fearing retribution, Begley had already split, driving over the mountains to San Diego where she holed up at Seymour's house. It's not over by a long shot, she told me on the phone. Her cell phone kept ringing the Los Angeles Times, Dateline, NBC, and her newly materialized pro bono lawyer, a victim's rights advocate who often appeared on the Nancy Grace talk show. Finally, the world seemed to be listening. Actually, this might be better, Begley says, sounding curiously invigorated. Through this experience has been, though this, this experience has been draining, it has given her a sense of purpose and cause. Hughes might be free, heading back to Honduras, but in a way, in a way, defeat offered a validation. The octopus wouldn't be the enemy she thought it was if it gave up its secret so easily. You're going to find out real soon, Begley says, that the world isn't what you think it is. So Jimmy Hughes got off again. No charges of killing anybody. And I have one last thing to read. And it's basically an interview that Jimmy Hughes did. Um, and this is what he said in his interview. At the end of the Vietnam War in 1973 marked the beginning of my military career. My instructors and teachers were American fighters who survived operations against the Viet Cong. I was 17 years old and aspired to climb the ladder in the military. I enrolled in each course no matter how hard it was. I attended schools in parachuting, scuba diving, escape and rescue operations as a prisoner of war, resistance, and survival in jungle, sea, and desert environments. I specialized in plastic explosives as a sniper. In six years, the military training I received included the Rangers and Delta Force transformed me into a soldier. At the age of 23, I began working for the CIA in covert missions outside the United States. In Asian countries, Europe and South America, I fought to defend the rights of others. I helped people who wanted to be free and fight dictators. The U.S. Army did not train me to be a cold-blooded killer, but to defend my countries and the enemies of democracy and freedom. After several secret missions, I left the CIA, and four years later, I left the Army and went to live a quiet life in California, never imagining that my bloodiest was yet to come. While serving in the military, I had an Italian friend who often spoke about a godfather, and I never paid much attention. I thought those were just things you see in the movies. My first job in the mob was collecting money from those who did not pay their bills, and that included broken legs, arms, and heads with baseball bats. Although the army, all through the army, I had already gotten a taste of what it was like to kill. With the mob, I offered my talent for gifts for money. I would murder someone for five, ten, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars. The most I got paid for killing somebody was fifty thousand dollars because it was professionally done. This was how, at age twenty-seven, I sold myself to evil. I became the confidant of the Godfather, who was in the business of casinos. 
I was a bodyguard for his children. I became a famous hitman for the mafia. Everybody in the United States asked for Jimmy Hughes. By that time, I was addicted to cocaine. I love cocaine. I had a terrible addiction. I would always carry the drug in my pockets. I drank hard liquor all the way. I always had a terrible nightmares because I had shed enough blood to fill a pool. One day, the godfather called me and gave me an order to kill a suspect for $30,000. To my surprise, I knew this guy. We used to be friends. But in the mafia, business is business. When I arrived at the guy's home, I was no longer a normal person, and I had been exposed to so much violence that I became a demon. I said hi to the guy and went into his house. He never imagined that he had opened the door to death. But inside the mansion, there were five other people who were drinking and snorting cocaine. I thought, I must, must get this done for the $30,000 that I was being paid. However, I did not know who the other five men were. Then I thought to myself that I would do a service to society by doing them all. The other five would be added to the contract for free. That night began to fall, and when I took my gun out, no one noticed it because they were too drugged and drunk. They were all talking nonsense, so I began. Bang, bang, bang. Everyone around me was dead within seconds. No one moved. They were totally unprepared. No one was expecting to die. I had shot all of them in the head. But right after it happened, I still was holding the gun in my hand between a pool of blood. I would see the shattered face of the man that I was paid to kill, and it would feel as though I would see my reflection in a mirror. The hairs in the back of my neck stood up as I saw my own bloody image. At the same time, I began to hear a voice say, Jimmy, you know that I love you and that I forgive you. I said to myself, oh God, I'm either going crazy or I did too many drugs and I killed so many people in my life. In that horrific scene, I somewhat laughed, but then chills came down my spine. My heart almost stopped. Then I heard the same voice again. Jimmy, you know I love you and I forgive you. Then I ran out of the place, leaving half a dozen dead for $30,000. Trapped in the solitude of my home, I took the phone and decided to call my mother, who is a Christian missionary in Guatemala. Listen, I said to her, I do not know if the FBI is going to catch me or if I should turn myself in. I don't know if I'm going to jail or if the mafia is going to kill me, but I want you to pray for me. I will not die or go to jail without setting things right with God. She prayed intensely for me over the telephone line from Guatemala with me in California and God in heaven. It was then when I first experienced the immersed power of a prayer and power greater than any weapon ever held in my hands. The next day, I went to see the Godfather and told him I wanted to quit, that I would never kill anyone anymore, and I wanted to be alone. He looked like he was seeing a madman. He paid me the 30000 but immediately said, Jimmy, you know the rules. You know you're putting your own life in danger. I replied, yes, I know, but if something happens, we all die. The FBI, the Justice Department, and the police had already been after me. They wanted to pick my brain to see how much information they could get about the mafia, but they had no evidence against me. I was a professional and never left a fingerprint at the crime scenes. I was proud of that. I was very careful with that because of my training. I was very professional. When they realized that there was no evidence against me to take me to court, I went to the witness protection program of the FBI in exchange for giving the authorities some information. I then devoted myself to God. I studied theology and graduated as a reverend, and now I serve the mafia of God, led by the Godfather of salvation and an eternal life, Jesus Christ. So now we have a hitman who was trained by our own government that murdered people, that one of the daughters of the murdered people proved that he murdered people and her father is dead and because it happened on an Indian reservation nobody cares and this guy is in Honduras preaching to God so that's why murder blows guys that's why murder blows dude okay I don't know how like Cody did you actually look into this YouTube channel not yet do you want me to tell you about it or no? Yeah. Tell me, tell me, tell me. Okay, so it is under 
Desert Fay, D D E S E R T F A E, all one word, all lowercase. Okay. If you go to the videos tab where it shows all of the videos, there is only one single video, and that oh. is so haunting. It was eight years ago, and it's the KNBC reports on Jimmy Hughes's arrest. And then if you go to the playlist tab, still under Desert Fay, there is uh one two three four five collections all titled different things like confrontations harassment in the media phone calls and summary videos and they have anywhere from two to 20 videos in each of them wow that sounds WTF. you have a lot of internet and youtube to watch i it it has the like weird little gray box like maybe the video won't work but i clicked on it and sound came out so there is stuff in there <laughs> and you have options <laughs> yeah and i want to watch it but like i already had this huge 600 page book and then i only found like two articles on the internet which the article that i read came from wired um but it's just one of those things where it's like the government took the land from the Indians, gave a little bit back, and then we're like, wait, we need your land to build casinos. And, and you kind of wonder reading that, like how much money really goes to the Indian reservations and yeah. how much now goes to mob connections. Because, I mean, obviously Native Americans don't have enough money to build a casino, like the like the Cherokee casino. Right. Like, Somebody had to pay for it. Somebody had to loan the money, you know? Yeah. And then these people end up dead, and the daughter finally is like, I have to find out who killed my father. And she does, but, but nothing's done about it because it's almost it's almost like this guy's connected to the mafia. We're not going to touch him or something. Yeah. He's in Honduras preaching she... Christian things now. What? Why? She is such a badass, though. She is. Holy cow. And I just couldn't believe that, like, nobody had reported on this with the Danny Casolero thing because it's like, this guy actually ended up murdered because of it, and she does her damnedest to search it out and actually finds out who does it and gets, like, a taped confessional. And still... They're it's just... probably in the confrontations playlist on her YouTube channel. But oh, all of the videos where you're talking about, like, she m recording a video of her on the phone with the Michael guy, like, all of that stuff's gone. Which is the creepiest thing. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. Not gone in Google Archives. Me, 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 me. I mean, I, I'm so excited to listen to this episode back because I always hear five more things I didn't hear the first time when oh, I listen to it. Confusing. And I had to like edit it and rearrange it because I no, was... no, it's not. It's not about how you told the story. It's that there's so much in it. There is so much in it. I read it a good six times, and then I had to reread it. <laughs> and I was like, "What if this takes two and a half hours to read?" <laughs> no, you nailed it. But Thanks. holy shnikes, that's a lot. That's. Yeah. Insane. I should have saved my cat shit story for now. Just to I can edit it. <laughs> there you go. She can mosh it around. At least I'm not, like I'm sad. Obviously, murder blows, but like I'm not depressed, and I don't feel as confused as I was before. So. Right. 
no, I did a shit job of those notes last time. I, I had longer to prepare this time, to be fair. So, yeah, I just don't know what I'm going to do next. I'm sure there's another tentacle. I'm sure there's another tentacle. There's got to be at least, what, seven more? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's so... I just... Like, this is why these stories are so overwhelming to me. That's why I just want Cody to tell them to me all the time, though. Because if I got a 600-page book in the mail, I would just be like, nope, this is my mic stand. <laughs> yeah, well, Tia's going to borrow it next, but then, you know, I can pass it around. Mm. I'll just have you read it to me. Um, all, your all your episodes will be connected for the rest of our lives. I didn't even mean to do that, but yeah, that's what happened. It's oh. like a little personal rabbit hole here. Shit, it's so good, though. You're going to end up on a list. No, I probably am. The shit that I've Googled lately, ridiculous. Like, and then with my foot wart, it's just like I've been Googling some <laughs> foot warts. So. <laughs> do you think your, FBI, your personally assigned FBI agent is like, what the fuck? Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's going to be like, what is happening? What does this mean? Like, he's probably Googling weirder shit than you are to try and, like, get one step ahead of you. Oh, yeah. Footwork. What do footwords have to do with a dog chewing through a decapitated man's neck? <laughs> what is it? Biological mean? warfare? Question mark? <laughs> Dang. Related to footwords, apparently. My fat cat has developed like these really weird calluses on his tippy toes oh. that look like additional claws. They don't hurt them, so they said leave them alone. But cats get weird things on their toes too. Huh. Man, if I would have known, like, I just went in there to the foot doctor to be like, hey, is this cancer? And he's like, no, those are just foot warts. We'll put some acid on it. It'll form a blister and fall off. I'm like, oh, that's the best news I've heard, like, all year. That's great. You know, I don't have cancer. And then a week later, I wake up in the middle of the night with shooting pains. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's probably infected. I'm going to have to pop it. And I have to crawl to my bathroom because I can't, I can't even put my leg down because I can't put pressure on any of my leg or it throbs with a heartbeat. And I'm crawling through the house in agony while my husband is silently sound asleep. But, yeah, it's okay. I'm going to deal with it. Tough it out. I'll let Are you know you when it heals. you supposed to have that kind of pain? Well, that was one of the things I Googled. And apparently, yeah, apparently, like... Oh. <laughs> is our government corrupt also? What do my foot warts mean? <laughs> exactly. Why I do mean... my foot warts hurt? It's I like reading your tea leaves. It could have been like, hey... This is going to hurt. Do you want to just keep it? Or do you you want it taken off? And I would have been like, well, if, since it's not hurting me right now, I'll just keep it. I'll just, you know, have a foot wart. But yeah, whatever. I to say, they're not, I mean, they're technically infectious, but you've got to, like, really get on to somebody else to give it to them. Exactly. And I probably like, got it, like, cleaning cabins or something. Like, God. Uncoordinated swimming pool. Exactly. <laughs> no, I had it before we got the pool. I've had it for a long time. And that's the part that it just, I had it for a long time and it kept getting bigger. And I was just like, Hey, I want to make sure this isn't cancer. And I'm, I have health insurance. I'm going to do the right thing. But now I'm just going to suffer in pain and agony and then get like a $300 bill in the mail because my health insurance probably won't cover a foot doctor and it'll be great. 
it'll be awesome. But at least I don't have cancer. Let's uh, let's wrap this up on something happy. <laughs> I don't know what it's been. Uh, yeah, everything's just been kind of shitty lately. Like hell, even Dollywood flooded over the weekend. Did you guys? Oh no, no! Dollywood. It did. Well, a happy thing that has to do with Dollywood, I guess. Um, <laughs> Allie's dad is. He works there, and she said she can get us tickets if we want to go. <laughs> hell yeah, Allie. Oh, my God. Damn. What does he do? He is, oh, my God. I'm going to mess this up. But he is, like, over all of the food. Oh, awesome. He, like, makes the recipes and stuff like that. Well, then we need some food, too, because. Yeah, I was uh... going to say, I will pay for food. I need food. Listen, I just want a damn turkey leg. That's all I want. Hook, hook your vegetarian friend up, okay? You don't have to eat a turkey leg. <laughs> I don't. I had a mushroom burger today, and it was really good, but they still put it on the normal bun, and it was like three quarters of the size of the bun. It was really sad. Oh. <sighs> no one else finished their food, but I finished all of mine because I didn't eat like a whole beef burger. I had a mushroom cap. It's very different. But everyone looked at me like I was a pig. Whatever. <laughs> Dear health coach. People are judging me. I lie to you. <laughs> Dang. Yeah, what a crazy story, Cody. Good freaking job. Not in a sarcastic way. I'm just... I am shooketh. Do people still say that? Yeah, I do. That okay. means it's not cool anymore. I feel like we said it last week. That means we're out. well, you know what? It applies. <laughs> I was watching DuckTales, the new ones. Did anybody watch those? I didn't know there were new ones. There, yeah, are, new ones. there are new ones. There are new ones, and my seven-year-old is obsessed with them. So they came out with a few more episodes the other day, and I'm watching it. And one of the I forget which one it was, but one of the Huey, Dewey, or Louie is like doing the air horn. And then he's like, cool, cool, cool. And I'm like, oh my god, now we sound like DuckTales. No, DuckTales sound like us. It's yeah. gotta be that. And we sound like... Who started the cool, 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 cool? Uh, Andy Sandberg. Did you get that from Brooklyn Nine-Nine? Nope. No, it's from Hot Rod. But I love Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Okay, but doesn't he say it in Brooklyn Nine-Nine too? I just started it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says that, and then he says, like, noise. Noise. Oh my god. Yeah, right? But we were, like, way before. No, yeah, this isn't, I guess, related, but I was working today. We were really busy, and this girl was like, so all this needs is ice, right? And I was like, yeah, noise, right? <laughs> I was like, noise. And she just kept looking at me. She was like, no ice? <gasps> and I was just like, no, I said noise. <laughs> No ice? They don't want any ice. And I was like, no noise. Oh. <laughs> and then, it, then the joke's over. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. I was like, no, they want ice. Like, <laughs> yes, put the ice in there. <laughs> I hate that that's all I really have to contribute. Like, my mind's blown. I've been awake for like 24 hours. I haven't eaten today. I'm sorry, that's all I have to contribute. My oh, mind is blown from the, from the story, Cody, by the way. It's not. Nothing else blew my mind today. It's okay. My my podcast, like when I do stories, like they're not as 
as funny as everybody else because I'm not a funny person. I feel I'm, like murder like, shouldn't be funny though. Well, yeah. But we're just funny people. We make everything funny except for me. I don't. You all do. I think you are funny, Cody. You're I funny don't. because you don't think you're funny and you don't try to be funny. I just Cody, the one-liners occasionally that are funny. You know, yes. who's that guy in the American Pie movies that only says, like, one or two lines the whole movie and you're just like, fuck, that was the funniest thing. It's like Silent Bob. Mm, yeah, Silent, Bob, Silent is Bob literally the best. Yeah, like, he just comes together with this, like, masterful shit once a movie. And it's it's great. That's me. That's what I do. I, I think he's <laughs> Thanks for baby. listening. Check us out on Twitter at MurderBlows and at Instagram at MurderBlowsCast or Reddit. Reddit. Yep. Can we do I'm something sad. different this time? On the outro? Yeah. I mean, take us what? home. What you can, can we all give one piece of advice to our listeners? Yeah. Okay. You go first. All right. Yeah, all right. Take lots of naps. <laughs> take lots of naps. That's great advice. <laughs> you know what? When, when the day gets you down, take lots of naps. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I like it. Watch videos that you know will trigger your anxiety or depression. Don't do it. Pick a different video. Just Vine compilations. Yes, just Vine yeah. compilations. Yeah. Um. Always make sure that underneath your fingernails are clean. <laughs> Don't eat three servings of carb cheese a day. Also, did everyone check their fingernails when Maisie was like, make sure underneath your fingernails. I was like, oh, fuck. I did. I always have paint underneath my fingernails, so they're never clean, and I feel dirty all the time. I do take lots of naps. Don't watch that many videos because of my internet. Um, but when you fill paint cans with cat litter, use clean cat litter. And not <laughs> 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 Thanks, I love guys. this idea, Violet. Good job. <laughs> Happen every week. Oh my god. I wish I was drunk. It's just sleep deprivation. There's <laughs> always yeah. next week. <laughs> Lots of naps. Alright. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> Bye. 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 But everyone looked at me like I was a pig. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Dear health coach. <laughs>